Hello you lot, welcome back to Sporthawk Sound, but before we go into today's episode, I just wanted to give you a cheeky little reminder to leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you're listening on right now, if you haven't already, it really does help us out. Now, enough of that, let's get on to today's episode. Let the games begin. Alright you lot, welcome back to another episode of Sporthawk Sound. I hope you're having a lovely week so far. Today, we are going to be talking about the Carabao Cup final and going through a little bit of the controversy surrounding it. There's nothing specific I really want to be talking about today. There's a couple different topics that made me think. Whilst I was watching the replay, I didn't actually get to watch the game live, but I did watch a replay of it. And there was a couple different things that I thought would be interesting to have a little chat about. So that's what we're going to do today. But first, we're going to go into the talking point. Okay, so I just want to start off this section by saying thank you. And it's been really nice to have a lot of positive feedback on our last episode because I think it was a little bit of a different kind of style. I left in quite a lot of the rubbish that I chat. Anyway, I do just have random thoughts and go down those routes. And that actually went down really well. I was a bit you know, I wasn't sure about how if how I felt leaving some of that stuff in because I don't know if I don't know if people want to hear me just chat absolute <laughs> about football. And I I know that's kind of what the podcast is for, but I thought, you know, at this time gonna be brave and leave some of it in. So <laughs> the especially the stuff about Spurs. Obviously, if you haven't listened to the episode, I do recommend you go back and listen to it. It's one of my favorite ones I've I've recorded so far. As at one point I do go down the alley of talking about Kylian Mbappe to Spurs. And those of you who know me know that it is said in jest. I still I, I stand by it. Like I didn't say it for no reason. I think it'd be sick to see Mbappe play with Richarlison and Son up front, like under Ange Postacoglu. But it was quite funny to see some people's reactions on the reels because obviously some of the people that watch the reels don't listen to the podcast or don't listen to podcasts yet because you know gonna get them on board but people genuinely think I'm being serious although it is quite weird I don't know I don't know why in football we have this thing now where if someone has an opinion people just assume that that's the team that you support like you can only have an opinion about your own club so like me saying for example me saying Oh, wouldn't it be great to see Mbappe play for a team like Spurs? I got a lot of messages being like, he would never move to your team. He's way bigger than your club. Which, first of all, is quite funny because I am in no way a Spurs fan. It's pretty obvious that that's not the case. But it's just, it's strange that people just assume that nowadays that if you have an opinion about a club that's positive, that they just automatically assume that you are a fan of that club because you can't see something nice about another club. It's, it, I don't know, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit childish, isn't it? But anyway, that is that's obviously besides the point. What was really nice is the reaction from the majority of people of just like listening to me ramble and just talk absolute rubbish for about half an hour. So that, that you know, that made me feel good. Stop it, you guys. <laughs> but yeah, in all seriousness, it's nice that I feel the more I do this podcast, I'm just going to talk about what I want to talk about. And hopefully you enjoy it too. Because that is the whole point of this. I enjoy doing it. And hopefully some of you like listening as well. Even if it is just me rambling about killing Mbappe to Southampton or, or talking about how many points Pascal Gross lost me on the bench of my fantasy team. 
if you have Pascal Gross in your team, by the way, get him in. Don't keep him on the bench. Play him. I, I've lost so many points having him on the bench. Prime example for you right there, actually. The point is, I'm glad that you're enjoying it so far. Hopefully, it's going to keep improving. This is a process. Obviously, this is like my 17th episode so far. And we're constantly evolving. I want to make it better, bigger, better, stronger. All of the lyrics, you know the one. And I'm glad that you're on this journey with me already. So, big love to you all. Now, my actual talking point for today is about managers pushing for a transfer window. And I don't mean a transfer window for players. Obviously, we have that in place. For managers, for themselves, only being able to leave a club during a certain time of the season. So I've had a little ponder about this. And I'm mixed about it because in some respects, it makes sense that managers will want to have a little bit more job security. The attrition rate of head coaches in football is so extreme. When you think about it, we, we kind of take this sort of thing for granted. The amount of time that a head coach or a manager is given at a professional football club because it is in the public eye and it's just, it's just commonplace for a manager to be given a short amount of time. And if they're not doing well, just to get sacked. And this isn't like any other industry in the world. In normal business, it's very, very difficult to sack an employee, let alone a manager. There's a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through and it can take a really long time. But in football, it is completely different. Let me give you a little bit of an example of how many managers leave their job at championship clubs. Because the manager merry-go-round in the championship this season has been pretty insane. So I'm just going to read out a little list. Well, quite a long list of the managerial changes in the championship. And bearing in mind, this is just for the 23-24 season. This diagram that I have here is a little bit confusing. So I'm going to try and make it as clear and simple as possible. So we're not here for five minutes. So I'm just going to read out the managers that have left. So I'm not going to talk about the ones that have come in. I'm just going to talk about which managers have left the club and how many departures there's been. So this can be anything from being sacked, retiring, leaving, going to a bigger club, going to a smaller club, whatever. It's just managers leaving. So we're just talking about the turnover. So I'm going to start on September the 21st of 2023, all the way up until today. And I'm going in that order. So the first managers to leave was Neil Warnock. He left Huddersfield in September. Then we had Cisco Munez, John Eustace, Neil Thompson, Gary Rowett, Gareth Ainsworth, Nigel Pearson, Adam Barrett, Curtis Fleming, Matt Taylor, Tony Mowbray, Michael Duff, Alex Neal, Wayne Carlisle, Mike Dodds, Paul Gallagher, Stephen Schumacher, Wayne Rooney, Alan Shearer, Alan Shearer, Alan Sheehan, (laughs) we're just going to keep going, Neil Dushit. Do snip. I'm struggling now, really struggling. Steve Cooper, Darren Moore, John Dahl Thomason, Damian Johnson, John Worthington, Michael Beale, and Joe Edwards. Apologies, that was a little bit of a mess. My dyslexia right on display for you there. So overall, that's 27 different managers who have left a post as a manager at a championship club. Yes, some of them are caretaker bosses, but you get the point. It's a huge turnover of staff. So I can understand why managers might push for something like this where they have a transfer window and they can only be sacked or signed in this period. Of course, they're going to want a little bit more stability. It will also allow managers to be given more time by the board as they're not allowed to just sack them when they're not doing a great job. But on the other hand, I just don't really know if this would work. 
Because in most cases, the way a manager is signed to a club is very, very different to the way a player signs. In the majority of cases of a player transfer, most of the time it's because a player either wants to leave on loan or the buying club wants to bring that player in. Whereas when a manager tends to leave a football club, most of the time it isn't because they're wanted by another club, it's because they're no longer wanted by the club they're currently employed by. And that's why this proposed transfer window for managers doesn't really seem to work in my mind because player transfer windows more or less are in place to stop big clubs coming getting your players mid-season and just wrecking a squad. It does allow squad stability and it allows the team to just be a little bit more settled throughout the season. If we didn't have the transfer windows, we know what would happen. A lot of the best players at smaller clubs would constantly be moving to the bigger teams and there wouldn't really be anything that they could do to stop it. Whereas, yeah, like I said, that demand for managers isn't really quite there. There is a couple cases where this has happened and it does happen where a manager is wanted by a bigger club and they do move, but it's nowhere near the same kind of extent. The one that really pops to mind is Graham Potter moving from Brighton to Chelsea. And I think they paid about £20 million for him then. But really, how often is it a manager actually moves from one club to another, especially in mid-season? I don't know. I, I just don't think it really happens. So as much as I would like to see a little bit more stability for managers, so they're given a bit more time and it is more fair for them. I just don't know if this would really work. I don't know if I've really explained my point that well. Hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. It's a little bit of a tricky one to kind of get your head around. But yeah, I, I, I kind of see, I can see why managers are pushing for it themselves. I just don't know if this will ever happen as it doesn't, the logistics of it wouldn't really work in the same way as a player transfer market would. So that's my verdict on that little topic that came up midweek. Now let's move on to the main topic of today's episode. I forgot to mention, by the way, I'm not feeling that well today. So I might sound a little bit down or a little bit, I don't know, lacking in energy, but I have been a little bit unwell over the weekend, but it's nothing serious. I'm just a little bit drained, but it's okay, nothing that a little bit of rest won't fix. And we're going to power through this episode and for the love of making content for you lot, of course. But I've got to say, I am getting a bit frustrated with my laptop at the moment as it just keeps cutting out and stopping the recording. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm not going to be complaining about it in every single episode. And that is my little moan over. So anyway, let's talk about the Carabao Cup final because it was really interesting. We obviously know, I'm not, you know, I'm going to spoil it for you. If you haven't watched the highlights, so you don't know, you should know by now. By the time this episode comes out, you should know the result that Liverpool won in the last minute. Well, actually the last minute of extra time. An absolutely huge winning header for Virgil van Dijk, which gave him his first medal, his first winner's medal, his first trophy as Liverpool captain. And even more importantly, Jurgen Klopp a trophy in his final season. Obviously, you know, we, they're still in contention for a lot of other competitions. But I've got to say, you know, I'm a neutral here, but it is nice to see him lift a trophy in his last season. Say the rest of the season does go down the drain for Liverpool for whatever reason they've had so many injuries it, it could happen it was really nice to see him celebrate this moment with the fans and I, I, I don't know about you lot but for me it felt like this was a really big moment and they really 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 cared about it winning any trophy at Wembley especially in front of a full stadium is going to be huge for anyone who's playing on the pitch 
But this Carabao Cup really did seem to mean a lot. And it felt like it would mean a lot to both sides. The Carabao Cup is often slated for its importance. And throughout the season, people always complaining about it and having midweek games and saying that it's not an important trophy. But the truth of it is, once you get to the final, it becomes one of the most important games of a club season. So I won't hear anyone saying that the Carabao Cup is an important trophy. If your club wins it, you're not going to be thinking that. And it's as simple as that, really. So going into the game, Liverpool did have a very depleted squad. And I did have a little bit of chat about Liverpool's injury problems in the last podcast. And the list is pretty mega. Some of the major names was Alisson Becker, Curtis Jones, Darwin Nunes, Jota, Matip, Bacecic, Thiago and Trent, of course. But saying that, we have to say Chelsea also did have a number of players out as well. Badia Shield, Chocolmenka, Kukurella, Rhys James, Lavia, Thiago Silva was a huge miss for them. And Fafana, who's always injured. So it's definitely fair to say that both clubs came into the game with a depleted squad, with a less strong team than they would be hoping for. But the real comparison is if you look at the strength of each side's bench. And this is really important as it did go into extra time. Usually I wouldn't be comparing which players were on the bench because it's not as important. But when you go into an extra 30 minutes of the game, it does become quite significant. So Chelsea did have Nkunku, Mudric, Madueke, Chalaba, Sanchez on the bench. So yes, they do have quite a lot of injury problems, but they do still have some decent options there, to be honest. But when you look over at the Liverpool bench, this is when you start to hear the stories and the chat about this Liverpool side beating Chelsea with their academy. They did have a couple of experienced players, Simakas and Joe Gomez. But then, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even going to lie to you. Most of these players I've never heard of. There was 19-year-old Bobby Clark, 19-year-old James McConnell, 18-year-old Jaden Dans, and then they did have a couple unused subs like Lewis Kumas, who's 18, and Trey Neone, who's only 16. But what was really surprising to me is actually quite a lot of these guys got on the pitch, and Jurgen Klopp just wasn't scared to use them. Bobby Clark came on in the 72nd minute, with McConnell and Dans coming on in the 87th minute, obviously then playing the whole of extra time. And in the process, Jurgen Klopp was taking off a lot of the experience on the pitch. And in reflection of this, Klopp clearly felt that the team needed energy because you'd expect that he'd want to keep as much of the experience into the later stages of the game as he could. But he opted just to go for legs in there and just players he knew were going to run and work hard for the team. So then by the time you get to the end of the game, I've been reliably informed by my cousin Bernd, who is the fountain of all football knowledge, that the total transfer cost of the 11 that Chelsea finished with was around £512 million whereas Liverpool's was around 150 million, which is pretty insane when you come to think of it. And then all of this shenanigans leads to what Gary Neville then went on to say that Chelsea are one billion pound bottle jobs. But is that really fair? Well, I don't know. Let's have a little chat about it, shall we? Because overall, looking at the big picture of the game, I tend to think that Chelsea probably were the better side on the day. It is a close it is a close call. I don't think that either side were outstanding, regardless of this actually being a very good game. But I definitely don't think that either side was completely dominant. And it just came down to those small moments at the end of the day. Because Chelsea created a lot of chance on their own. I think people saying that Chelsea were destroyed by Liverpool, I think that's way off. Especially in the first 90 minutes of the game. I probably would say Chelsea created more chances, but obviously Liverpool scored in that time, which I think is a totally legitimate goal. And the stats kind of represent that as well. Chelsea had about 2.3 expected goals in the game, whereas Liverpool had 1.8. 
But Liverpool did have more shots and they did keep more of the ball. They made more passes and they did have more shots on target. They were also more dominant in the air as well, which is pretty evident considering both of their goals were scored by headers. But throughout the game, that was the case. But overall, I'm not surprised. If you actually look at the stats, it was a pretty close game. So it's not really a surprise that we went to extra time. Other than the fact that the referee and VAR cancelled out what I think is a completely fair goal. I mean, even Rory Jennings. I was watching the replay of uh, Rory Jennings, I think it's the club, and they were talking about it. They were doing a watch along. And even Rory Jennings, who's the biggest Chelsea fan on YouTube, he even thought that that was a fair goal. And he was astounded when it wasn't given. So that, that really should tell you something. But I mean, let's just give a shout out to Endo quickly, shall we? Because that guy was absolutely everywhere. Four tackles won, 11 ground duels won, one aerial duel as well. Committed 2,000, was fouled four times himself. But really, it just seemed like he was all over the pitch and really holding up that midfield. That Chelsea were kind of dominating, especially in the first 90 minutes. But he held it together, showed some experience. And yeah, won more duels than anyone else on the pitch. But I mean, this is just such a clear example of how you really don't need to go and spend £100 million on a midfielder. I still don't think he's a long-term option for Liverpool. But to show up in midfield like that when they're playing against Chelsea, who had a combined midfield of 220 million, between two players, between Caicedo and Enzo, those two guys cost Chelsea 220 million pounds between them. There is plenty of caveats to have there, obviously. And Enzo, I'm getting confused, Enzo and Endo, (laughs) Enzo Fernandez and Caicedo are still very technical players. They're very talented and young. But this really does just show up Chelsea's transfer strategy, doesn't it? Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I think people are kind of forgetting that Liverpool overall, they, they have spent a bit of money themselves. I know a lot of it wasn't on the pitch, but saying that it was such like a crazy result that Chelsea lost to Liverpool. Like Liverpool, one of the best teams in the world. Virgil van Dijk, who obviously scored a goal, £75 million, and that was a big fee, especially at the time. So we shouldn't really forget that if we're trying to be fair. But overall, we do know it's very clear how expensively assembled this Chelsea squad is, even if they are missing a couple of their players. And whilst I think Endo probably was one of the best players on the pitch, I also think Kelleher deserves a shout out. For a reserve goalkeeper, so second choice goalkeeper, to show up to that extent is so rare. He doesn't get a lot of game time. He's never going to be the number one at Liverpool. But he came up clutch at one of the most important moments he could. He made nine saves in this game. And he faced an expected goals on target of 2.95. So to keep a clean sheet in that situation is so, so impressive. But yeah, he is 25 years old now and he's been a second choice goalkeeper his whole career. If you're putting in performances like that in a Carabao Cup final, at some point, surely you're going to want to go somewhere else and be first choice. This might be something that Liverpool fans are a little bit worried about because he might at this point be one of the best second goalkeepers in the league. And surely he's going to want to go somewhere else. I mean, this is very similar to Martinez when he was at Arsenal. Had a couple loan spells, but really he showed up for Arsenal at a big time in the FA Cup. And then quickly moved on to Aston Villa. I can see this sort of thing happening for Kelleher as well. Because he's shown what he can do. And I don't think he's as good as Alisson. He's never going to really be as good as Alisson, I don't think. So there's very little chance that he displaces him at Liverpool. So really, he is going to have to go somewhere else if he wants to play first team football on a consistent basis. So maybe that's something for Liverpool to think about. Because here, he's almost won them the game. He has done just as much as Virgil in this game to bring home that trophy. So they've definitely got a lot to thank for him because he, he, he made some amazing saves. There was three in particular and any of those could have been a goal. And he, 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 was, he, was, he was really, really good. 
if you haven't already, I definitely recommend you go back and watch it because I know there was only one goal in the game, but this was, well, it's, it's still a good watch. But yeah, so obviously we have got to talk about it at some point. I've kind of been teasing it the whole time. I just want to have a little chat about VAR. We need to, we need to talk about it again because it's just, it's just not, it's a problem. It's just not going away. It's a bad smell in every game that just won't go away. And we have a prime example of VAR being used in the wrong way again. And on the biggest stage, they always feel like they need to do their most to try and stop any goal being given, which completely just, it just, it's like, what's the point? What's the point in football if you're just looking for any opportunity to disallow a goal? And also, it just took a really long time as well. Just looking at replays, if it's clearly a break of the rules, you should be able to see it within the first couple seconds of looking at a highlight. So if it takes you so long, just let it go and let the goal stand. Let the fans celebrate in the stadium or at home. Let the players enjoy the moment because it's just constantly becoming a burden of every single match that you watch, especially in the Premier League, where we just, we're not even understanding their decisions anymore. They are just so worried to let a goal stand and be criticised for that, that they just do their utmost to look for every single possible reason to cancel a goal. And it is just frustrating at this point, like Endo being called offside when he's not, he's not even anywhere near. Like I know, I know he uh, stops uh, Levi Colwell's run, but the incident just happened so far away from when the goal was actually scored. It's not like Virgil was on his own. Chilwell didn't make the ball and Colwell just didn't even try and get past him, really. He doesn't interfere with the ball. I know he stands in his way, but if you watch it, I think you're going to, you're going to appreciate what I'm saying here. It just, it's, it's just not right. Colwell's on the wrong side of Virgil van Dijk. If he is looking to defend him from that set piece, it's just, it's just, it's just not right. I, uh, it just annoys me because it just happens so often. I just want referees to use a little bit of common sense and we can always blame VAR. But the fact of the matter is, it's the people using VAR who aren't doing it effectively and they're not even getting the right decisions a lot of the time. I guess we can, you know, we can live with it a little bit more if we have to wait a little bit of time to get the right decision. But they just keep looking and looking and looking. The VAR official is in the ear of the referee saying, look, we need to look at this. We need to look at it. We need to keep going and try and find if there's something wrong. So the referee, you know, it, it's almost like they're hopeless at this point. How often do they go and look at the screen and make a decision for themselves and have their own free will? It, once it goes to the VAR official, it's just, it's just game over, really. Obviously, they do sometimes get it right, but it just, if it was more often than not, it's such, such a big problem. And it, it just ruins the moment. So you can tell how frustrated I am. I'm not even a Liverpool fan. And at the end of the day, Liverpool won the game. They wrongly had a goal disallowed, but they did win the game in the end. So it's not such a big deal. But I don't know, just, just as a fan, it's just frustrating, which you can probably tell. I, I, I just get annoyed by kind of stuff like this. Just they need to start using a little bit more common sense. I'm sure it's a very difficult job, but how difficult can it be just to think it's not black and white? go with the on-field decision because that's how it should be looked at now. It should be done on the on-field decision unless they find something significant that can prove that it's wrong. And then just leave it at that and we can all get on with it. They keep VR in the game because they've invested so much money in it, but we don't spend quite as long just looking at replays and ruining the flow of the match. So we can actually get on with it and hopefully we get some of the decisions right. And hopefully also people can then just accept the on-field decision which is definitely easier said than done. That's, that's, that's fair. But 
yeah, that's just that's just how I see it now. So going back to what we were talking about in terms of our Chelsea one billion pound bottle jobs, well, the answer is just definitely yes or no. Because when you look at it from the start of the game, I don't think anyone can say that Chelsea losing a game to Liverpool is bottling it, especially when they weren't winning at any point. For me, people don't actually use the word bottle job in the right way a lot of the time. I think bottling it is more when you're ahead in a game, when you're miles ahead, and then you just disintegrate and lose. So with that in mind, can Chelsea really be bottle jobs when they never actually were winning the game and they were playing a very good side in Liverpool, regardless of how many injuries they had? Definitely not. I I think that's, yeah, it's pretty harsh. But when you look at it in respects of how many young players finished the game, and to be honest, in the last 30 minutes, in the 30 minutes of extra time that we did play, I think it kind of looked like Chelsea were just holding out for the draw and then they wanted it to go to penalties, which in that respect, when Liverpool are then playing with a very weak team, a very young team, you think Chelsea shouldn't be giving up at that point and playing for penalties. They need to go for the win. They maybe did bottle a few chances, but I don't think any of them were really clear cut. And we've already talked about how well Kelleher played. But in extra time, they definitely did have a better chance of winning as their squad was way more experienced and had way more quality on paper. That is the time Chelsea really need to be attacking the game. I know they've been playing for a long time and going into extra time is difficult. They're playing for 120 minutes, but they, they really got to be going for the win and not just playing for a draw. So really, I probably would say that Gary Neville isn't, I think he's been quite harsh on Chelsea there. But I've got to say, in some respects, I do kind of understand where he's coming from due to the amount of money that they have spent on the whole squad. It really, really does accentuate how much money they've spent on the squad, which is so average. What they have done is spent a lot of money on good players, players with a lot of potential. And since Todd Bowley's come in, they've clearly invested hugely in all aspects of the club, but they haven't done it in a balanced and considered method. It's not really talked about enough how spending a hundred million pounds on a player, you, you need to be getting a guarantee. You shouldn't be spending that kind of money for a player who's purely got potential. Enzo Fernandez, for example, he was really good at the World Cup and he was deemed to be the best young player at that tournament. He, of course, was really good at Benfica as well and did well. I remember he played a good game against Arsenal in Europe and he looked like he was a superstar. But the problem was they went in for him when the hype was so high and therefore Benfica could just charge whatever they wanted, which isn't smart business at all for Chelsea, of course. They did the same with Caicedo, but he really only had one whole season at Brighton. And to then spend that kind of money on a player like that, yes, he might become one of the best midfielders in the world, but he doesn't have a strong unit around him. There's not a strong spine in that squad because they had such a big turnover. He's expected to come in, especially with that price tag, just adds pressure. But he's expected to come in and be the bee's knees straight away. And it's extremely difficult. It's it's not easy for a young player to come to a big six club where the eyes on you is insane. They've got so many people expecting so much from you. And when there's been such a big transfer fee paid, it's it's not Caicedo's fault, by the way, that they paid that much for him, but it increases the pressure so much and there's no margin for error. But all around the squad, they've spent a lot of money and it just feels like they spent a lot of money on kind of average players. If you look at the other side of the pitch, Virgil van Dijk, when he did move to Liverpool from Southampton, he'd been playing in the Premier League for quite a long period of time and he'd also played in the Europa League with them. 
And at that stage of his career, it felt like the natural progression. Yes, it was a bit of a shock, the transfer fee that they did pay, because it wasn't such a normal thing to spend £75 million on a defender. But he played in various European competition at Celtic and Southampton, and pretty much been a star everywhere. And of course, he was in his mid-20s. He wasn't quite as young as the players that Chelsea seemed to be targeting. It felt like he had matured and he was ready for that move. But if you just look around the Chelsea squad, they're all of similar age and they're at a similar stage of their career. That yes, I mean, you could say they're growing together, but they all have just got so much to learn. And I know there's all this chat about Liverpool being a younger team, but actually the two starting 11s that started the game, Chelsea did have a younger average age. Enzo's 23, Caicedo's 22. Colwell was 21, Gusto's 20, their striker Nicholas Jackson's only 22 and of course Cole Palmer's only 21 and he has been really good for them this year but it's not like he can do everything himself. Even Petrovic their goalkeeper's only 24. So I guess really what I'm trying to say here is that Chelsea just haven't balanced out their squad. If you're going to be spending £1 billion on a squad surely you've got to end up with some superstars in there. How do they not have a world-class striker? How do they not have like a dominant experienced centre-back but they still spent significant fees on players who just aren't quite up to it and I do feel like I could be repeating myself a little bit here yes they could improve and I'm sure a lot of them will I thought Colwell was really good and I think when he's playing at centre-back Chelsea look better opposed to when he's playing at left-back but there's almost like no star talent in that team I mean, even the substitutions that they made, Madueke's only 21, Madrid's is only 22. Oh, sorry, I think Madrid's 23, actually. But these aren't academy players. These are players that they brought in. And the majority of them are brought in for hefty transfer values as well. So no, I don't think Chelsea are necessarily one billion pound bottle jobs, but they're not as good as they should be for the amount of money that's been spent. But I, I, just, I just don't think that any team can be bottling it against Liverpool when, it, when they haven't even been winning in the game. But mine, they definitely had a good chance to win this. And it would have been absolutely huge for Maurizio Pochettino to get his first trophy in England. This was a pretty decent chance for it to happen when you are looking at the state of the injury crisis at Liverpool. But you can never underestimate Jurgen Klopp. No one can argue that he has an elite mentality. And he is a huge reason why this Liverpool side were able to hold on and get a last minute goal. So overall, I'm pretty happy for him. I think it's a great story. And it's kind of funny because I was talking about him getting a trophy in a previous podcast in his last season and how nice that would be. And it's already happened. So good for him. Good for Liverpool fans. You've had a nice weekend. Chelsea fans, commiserations, of course. But if this Chelsea side is able to improve, we don't know what the whole story about Mauricio Pochino is going to be. Is he going to stay at the club? I think that's a topic for another episode. We could go into that for a long period of time. But if this young side is able to improve in the future, which I'm sure they will, I'm sure there'll be better days to come for you Chelsea fans. So don't worry about it too much. And for now, I think we're just going to leave it there. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sport Hawk Sound. I really hope you enjoyed. And if you did, make sure you leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you're listening on. And maybe give it a cheeky share with one of your friends or family. That would be really, really great. But yeah, thank you for joining me and I'll be back very soon with another episode of Sport Hawk Sound.